Okay, I'm going to um, open us up with prayer because this is a real, um, uh, this is a provocative message, provocative. And so I'm going to open us up with prayer so that we'd have the Holy Spirit open up our hearts for this provocative message, okay? Lord Jesus, I thank you for this um, book and this message and this man that's written this, Lord. And I thank you, God, that you are taking us to the next level. God, open up our hearts. Holy Spirit, say what you want to say tonight. Do what you want to do. <laughs> convict who you want to convict. <laughs> Lord, we just we put it in your hands. And we say, we say, here we are. Here we are. Do what you need to do. Tell us what you need to tell us, Lord. And I just thank you, God, that you are so gentle and kind with us. And we can never mess up. Not with you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right. I made wonderful notes. Who needs them? Anybody? Shoot, I only have two left. Here, can you guys split one, share one? <clears throat> I'm getting better on my notes because I only put the Bible verses down. That way, if I stray off on, you'll never know, right? <laughs> I'm like, oh, this gives me a lot of freedom because I just ha I write the intense notes up here for myself. Um, those of you who don't preach, don't maybe don't understand. It's really hard sometimes to figure out what to preach on <laughs> because you're like, oh my gosh, I just preached and I don't know what what should I do. And so you pray and you ask the Lord <clears throat> that hopefully He gives you something interesting that you have a heart to pray, you know, to do. And um, a couple of things I had been talking to the Lord about. I don't know about you, but do you ever feel like sometimes life is real, real hard and there's not a lot of joy in it? Do you ever feel that way? And you're like, is this the way it's supposed to be? <laughs> you're like, wait a minute, where's all the joy that, you know, this, this joy that passes, you know, peace that passes all understanding and all this kind of stuff. And you're like, but the, the world is so hard. Why is, we're all, I feel like we're always waiting for something to happen. Right, we're always waiting for what's coming down the. This fantastic thing is going to come down the road, and we're all going to be swept away in this rapture or whatever. Right, and when that doesn't happen, you're like, oh my gosh, this is the drudgery of day after day, and I just don't understand it. And I was kind of having this conversation with the Lord because it's tiring, right? And um, I remember I heard a speaker one time talk about. A, revivals there were different kinds of revivals and he said there's a revival coming which is going to be the greatest revival of all time and it's the one that has to do with love and the father's heart just love that pours out to the whole world so that it's an irresistible attraction it's it's not going to be um the way the ones that have come before have been much much smaller than the one that's coming suppose is what this guy was saying and and it's going to be where our hearts are so filled with the, the love of the father that there's nothing else that can exist inside our hearts like we, nothing else has space you know what i mean like of our heart 100 percent is filled up with this incredible massive love that that joy that comes with it is is undeniable and that's what i want do you guys want that like i want that now and not in the future because i'm tired of the drudgery of life you know and do we have enough money to pay the bills and you know who's sick and and how are my kids doing and I need you know my kitchen needs to be remodeled and you know whatever I hate this sink you know stuff like that right <laughs> I wish this deck was longer and yeah exactly <laughs> and first world problems right and but at the same time, because we're in this world, we think about stuff like that, and we don't always keep our mind, whatever. Joy eludes us, right? And so I've been talking to the Lord about this, like, where, you know, how did Bill Johnson get to be Bill Johnson? You know, how did all these incredible people just overflow with love and pour it out? How, did, how does Todd White be Todd White? Like, why is that not attainable for us, you know? So in the middle of that conversation, I'm like, Lord, what do you want me to preach on this week? What do you want me to preach on this week? And Jody Randa, bless her heart, I hope if she's listening to me by podcast sometimes, she sent me this book called Unoffendable by Brant H Hansen. He's actually a Christian radio show host. Well, he's on, yeah, he's on, uh, on Way FM. Uh -huh. on Way FM. 
Uh-huh. Yeah. So he wrote this book, Unoffendable. And I'm like, well, I'm going to read this book. And I read this book and I went, wait a minute. This is exactly what I'm looking for. Oh my gosh, Lord, you do answer prayers. I can't believe it. Oh my gosh. So we're going to talk. And I, listen, for me, this is the answer to what I've been asking. And it's, this is going to be a provocative message. Or I should say it might be provocative. I won't set the stage. It might. Maybe you're like, oh, I knew that all along. For me, a very provocative message. And one that I believe is what will propel us to that joy that overflows. That is the next place for us. And I mean, we talk all the time about um, wanting to walk in our, at least I do, wanting to walk in our destiny or be, being disciples, right? And, and how we can come to the, you know, no one likes my analogies, we can come to the Lord with our dirty diapers, but <laughs> nobody likes it, I love it. But infants can't walk out the kingdom. Infants can't achieve their destiny because they're infants. If we're going to walk in our destiny, if we're going to um, be co-redeemers in this world, we've got to be adults. We have to be adults. We have to. And so in order to do that, we have to grow up. We have to um, grow up and be mature Christians. I believe this is a message for mature Christians. I believe this is a message that takes us to maturity. And it's not one that maybe we will want to un- even get a hold of right away. I don't know. It may be, this is my challenge to you. Listen to what I have to say. Go read the book. Buy the book and get on Amazon. And decide for yourself. Just decide for yourself. If this is something that you think is going to lead you to maturity in some way or another, for me, it does. For me, what I've read in this and what I've prayed about and investigated in the scriptures for myself, I'm like, oh yeah, this is what we're supposed to be doing. If I want to be in that next revival, it involves this. It involves being unoffendable. So that's my intro. Can you guys roll with that? Okay. The definition, just so you know, it might be on your notes, I don't know, I don't know what to put on there. Definition of offended is to be resentful or annoyed, typically as a result of a perceived insult. Um, I want to make a distinction here. Anger, if you do any kind of psychology or whatever, anger is often what we call a secondary emotion. So, What we're going to talk about tonight is not anger as a secondary emotion. A secondary emotion would be an example of you get your feelings hurt one way or the other, and anger is a response, okay? So that anger is a response because you're protecting your hurt feelings. That's what people call a secondary emotion. It's really covering up or protecting your first or primary emotion. That is not what I'm talking about tonight. Tonight I'm talking about anger that comes from what we just talked about right here resentful or annoyed, typically, typically as a result of a perceived insult. Not a hurt. This is not secondary. This would be a primary emotion. Do you guys follow me with that? And when we're doing this, we have to, um, in order to do this, we're talking about being mature now, right? I'm talking to mature people that want to be mature Christians. We need to probably, right now, here and now, agree with and accept that all of us have wounds and all of us have filters. Okay, can we just all be vulnerable and say we all have a filter and we all have a wound? So when I'm talking about this anger, when I'm talking about your um, secondary emotion versus a primary emotion, what I'm asking you to do when you feel anger is say to yourself, wait a minute, what's my filter involved with here? What's going on here? Is this a secondary emotion for me? Am I hurt somehow? Am I filtering this through my brokenness or my woundedness? What kind of anger am I dealing with here? Okay. And then let's just say this, the world is full of angry people. For a lot of people and for the world and especially even for the world and I'll say immature Christians even, anger is a default response. It's our most go-to response is to be offended or angry. Case in point, are you going to kneel or stand for the flag? What are you going to do? (laughs) so my point to you is the world our culture is full of offended people for one reason or another 
It's everywhere we go. And being offended is kind of in vogue. Well, I'm offended, I'm offended that they would kneel. I'm offended that they won't kneel. I'm offended that they march. I'm offended that they don't march. We're all talking about our offense and why it's right and why it's just. So this is a very timely message, I think, especially as Christians. You know, I want to read the back of this really quick. <laughs> Brant Hansen asks a radical, freeing question. What if Christians were the most unoffendable people on the planet? And he offers a life-changing idea. Ooh, get ready for this one. This is gonna, this is, just hold on to it while I say it. Righteous anger is a myth. And giving up our right to be offended can be one of the most healthy, simplifying, relaxing, refreshing, stress-relieving, encouraging things we can do. That's what we're going to talk about tonight. So hold on to your hats, people. We're getting into it. All right. Janet, what is our blank to become unoffendable? What's that, what's, what should that be? Motive. Motive. Why would we even try to become unoffendable? Let's look at our scriptures here. One, one answer is because the Bible tells us to. Okay? My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be slow to speak, quick to listen, and slow to become angry because human anger human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. <laughs> Next, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and whoops, filthy language from your lips. What? Colossians 38. I'm going to read you a story. So, now that's just, the Bible says we should let go of anger. I'm going to read you a story from this book. I would tell it to you, but he tells it so well, I want to read it. Because I love stories. I love um, word pictures. This is from a story about Sheldon Van Uken from a book called A, Sev a Severe Mercy. There were two dogs who lived in the country. They had pretty much the ideal country dog setting. Beautiful rolling hills, lots of sunshine and romping, and a good master who was kind to them and loved them. It was the kind of life you'd love to have if you were a dog. Gypsy was an older dog, and the young dog was named Snowball. Every day about the same time, their master called them in for dinner. They knew to obey. That means they had to respond as soon as they heard their master's call. One day, at the exact moment the master called them, Gypsy, Snowball dinner time. A rabbit ran across Gypsy's path. Suddenly she felt a strange sensation. She wanted to ignore her master and chase after the rabbit. She was tempted, but she yielded to what she knew was right and went to dinner immediately as she was trained. But the next day it happened again, and this time she gave in to temptation. She heard her master's voice, but she decided she just wanted to chase the rabbit right now. And when she finally came for dinner, she came with her tail between her legs. She knew she had done wrong. She didn't want to do it again. But she did it again and again until it became easier for her. Soon, Snowball was able to run free while Gypsy was now leashed. Her master was heartbroken. He loved her, but he knew he couldn't trust her anymore. One day, the master loaded his dogs into the car to take them for a walk in the woods. Gypsy and Snowball loved the smell of the woods. When they arrived, Gypsy now used to disobeying, took off before the master could put his leash on her. She was free. She ran and ran and ran into the woods, free. Her master called her name desperately, Gypsy, 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 in hopes she would return to him. He and Snowball searched for hours, but to Gypsy, his voice became more distant until she couldn't hear him anymore. She was excited, but she noticed it was getting cold. The sun was going down. Meanwhile, Gypsy's owner and master, who loved her so, cried as he put Snowball back into his car and drove home. He never saw Gypsy again. Gypsy lived in the woods the rest of her life. Her fur grew matted, and she was lost and alone. She missed her master's voice and the way he took care of her. She eventually had some puppies, and she told them about the master and how good he was, but they only knew some stories. They didn't know him. 
The puppies grew up, and they told their own puppies about the master, but by then, no one really knew him at all. That's the end of the story. He goes, Van Newken tells it better, but that's how I told my kids what he says. I wanted them to know that while I love God and I want to be close to him, he has given us all a choice whether or not to serve him. Is that a really good story or what? Is that good, Lee? The reason I tell that story to you is we get to have a choice to participate in this thing called being unoffendable. But being unoffendable isn't just for the sake of, you know, the Bible tells us to do this. It's because we have a relationship with God and he knows what's best for us, just like that master did for that dog. And we can choose to ignore him and ignore what he says, but we're going to go further and further away from the Lord if we don't do what God tells us to do. And I'm not here to lay the big burden on you and to lay the big, this is the way you ought to live. I'm just telling you, if we're going to go on and be mature Christians, obedience is part of it. Obedience is part of it. And it's not blind obedience. It's obedience because God knows how he made us. He knows this world. He knows what he's asking of us, and it's the best for us, let alone the world, the best for us. Here's another radical, radical thought, you guys. Get ready for this. When you think about Jesus, I want you to really think hard. Who was Jesus offended at? Anybody else? Okay. Yeah, who was he offended at? Pharisees, uh-huh. Was he ever offended by anybody's morality? No. Ever? Anytime? Okay, so. Never. Not not, he was not offended by anybody's morality. So my question to you is if Jesus is not offended by anybody's morality, should we be offended by anybody's morality? <laughs> no, my, I'm serious. Do we... Do we need to be offended by anybody's morality if Jesus was not? Can I say something? Uh-huh. When I first became a Christian and I was going to an evangelical church involved in groups, it seemed like everybody was offended at all the stuff going on and at people. And I kind of, Smoking stinks. And I kind of, I kind of adopted that. <laughs> yeah. Up until the last few years, I was offended at a lot of stuff. Because, tell me why. Yeah. Here's the reality. If <laughs> part of being offended, the one of the um, components of offense is we need to do God's job for him, which is to punish people. That's a component of offense, right? What? I told you it was going to be a provocative message. It's provocative. Par yes. I'll try to. Part of a component of offense is that we, have to, we feel like we have to punish people because God's not going to do it. Is that what I said? In place of God? What did I say? Like we think God should. My point is, the, the, reason we, the reason we become offended is because we feel like they're not getting their punishment, that we are going to take the place of God and meet out the wrath or indignation they deserve. Mm -hmm. we, what do we do? We put ourselves in the place of God. And here's the reality. Every single sin was laid on the cross with Jesus, and he bore all the punishment for everyone's sin so we don't need to punish anybody. It's not our job to punish anybody because Jesus did it already. If we keep doing it, what does that say? Either we don't think it was completely done on the cross or we, God's not doing it good enough. That's crazy, right? 
Let God deal with other people's moral behavior. God took his wrath out on Jesus for other people's sins, so we don't need to help him out with his job. The other, the, uh, the, here's another really good one. There's a scripture that says the heart is deceitful above all things. The other thing is, when we become offended at other people's behavior, we are assuming that our heart is discerning correctly what's going on in their lives. The assumption is, well, I know why you're behaving immorally because you blah, 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 blah. But the scripture says our heart is deceitful above all things. Our heart is deceitful. Why would we trust our heart to make a proper judgment about anything? There's a really, um, one of Chris's favorite shows, and I actually really like it too, is Breaking Bad. If you guys ever watch Breaking Bad, do you know what that's about? Okay. Breaking Bad is about a chemistry teacher who got cancer, and in order to pay for cancer, he started to cook meth. <laughs> Serious, that's the, that's the premise of it. He, he's like, I'm going to cook meth, I'm going to sell it so I can have enough money for my own treatment, provide for my family when I die. But what happens is, as he gets enmeshed in this drug lifestyle and the greed and everything of the money gets a hold of him, he goes from this kind of respectable chemistry teacher that you would never know to do this to this eight seasons later murderer. I mean, horrible murderer person. And he went down the slippery, slippery, slippery slope down to where he was over here. It's a fascinating show because it shows you how sin can take you down the road when you give, when you give way to it. My point in telling you that is you could not look at that man's life and know what's going on with him. That's what makes it so good. He was living such a double life. We can't look into people's lives and know why they're doing what they're doing. We don't have the godlike vision to do that. So why do we try? So why do we do it? I don't know why that NFL player kneels on the, on the um, field. I don't know why. Maybe he experienced really bad things. I don't know what's going on with him. Do I need to judge his motives? Do I need to judge his reasoning? Is that my job to do? Is that anybody's job to do? It's a provocative message. <laughs> Stop being scandalized by other people's behavior. That doesn't have anything to do with if it's right or wrong. Just stop being scandalized by it. Was Jesus scandalized by anybody? Do we need to be scandalized by anybody? He did not agree with right or wrong behavior. He did not endorse wrong behavior. But he wasn't scandalized by it. All right, number two. What does the Bible say about anger? Good, that's very close. In Genesis, it's fierce and cruel. Burning, a blazing fury in Exodus and Leviticus. Hostility, full vent. Burn and destroy in Deuteronomy. Boils with rage in Samuel. Terrifying, fierce, consuming in Psalms. Do any of those sound peaceful to you? Does it sound fun? Does it sound like something you want to do every day? No. no. You can't have peace and anger at the same time. Really, <laughs> the scripture says, Jesus says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Well, does anger that's fierce and burning and, and um, let me see, full vent, boils with rage, terrifying and fierce, feel easy or light to you? Do those see, things seem to go hand in hand there? Seems to me like that's not part of my yoke is easy, my burden is light. They did this um, study, it actually, it's, this is not by Christians, they did this study on human beings' fight or flight um, response. Have you ever heard of this? Do you know? I, I know a lot about the fight or flight. Okay, fight or flight. So what they did was they compared it to animals, because we are animals, right? But they compared it to other animals. And what happens is when it, like an antelope gets chased by a lion, it has this fight or flight dump of adrenaline so it can bounce out of the way and quickly either get away or be eaten, right? And it's a kind of a rather quick response. It's, it's your adrenaline dumps in, you, you take off like crazy, 
an hour later, 20 minutes later, you're either dead or you're alive and you relax. The antelope relaxes. What happens with people is they're constantly in a fight or flight. They, they, what they figured out was people, especially people that are angry and offended, live at this simmering um, fight or flight place all the time. Yeah, instead of going up and then coming down and go, going back, prancing around, eating your food, whatever, forgetting about it, people are up here all the time, all the time. And they have ulcers, and they have high blood pressure, and they have disease, and they have broken families, and they have all kinds of bad things because they're up, their cortisol spiked up here all the time, all the time. They're always threatened. They're always anxious. They're always upset. And so up, this is what's going on. Where the antelope is off eating his food over there, and he had a spike of adrenaline, but now he's done. Forgiveness is our only recourse. And this is a hard one for me, you guys. And we're going to get into our next one, which is, well, maybe I'll save it for that. Forgiveness is our only answer. You know, this is a good story from the Bible. <laughs> okay, so there's a man, and he got killed. And all his friends, he had 12 friends, and all his friends at the very last minute turned their back on him, and they betrayed him. Or not betrayed, walked away, and didn't stick with him. And he went to face his death almost all alone, except for one, one friend and a couple of women. But for the most part, they just all left him. And he had hung around them for three years. He had spent every day with them for three years and taught them and loved them and showed miracles and all kinds of crazy things. And at the last moment, they just all ran away. They were so scared. So this man dies, Jesus. And on the third day, he is raised from the dead. And all his friends who... who said they were never going to leave him, all went off and started doing their old jobs again, being fishermen, all that kind of thing. And don't you know, they're out on the boat fishing, and they see a man on the shore, and he's cooking up fish. He's got breakfast on the coals. And these men finally recognize this is Jesus. Peter, we know, jumps out of the boat, and he's so anxious to get back to Jesus, he runs back to Jesus and all the men come back. And you know what Jesus does when they all come back on the shore? He doesn't do what I would do, which is say, I need your five-point apology before we could be friends again. <laughs> Where's my five points? You know what you did wrong. I'm sorry for what I did wrong. I know that it hurt you. I won't, you know. Did Jesus say, you know, listen, we've got to have a psychological thing here where, you know, we've got to work through all our hurts and everything. Did Jesus do that? Did he say, listen, I need a five-point apology? Did he say, hey, I just want you to know I'm real, real hurt that you did not stand by me? You know what Jesus did? He said, can I give you some fish? Can I serve you some fish? Are you hungry? I got fish here cooking on the coals. That's what Jesus did. And I ask you, <laughs> is that something we can do? Is that what we're called to do? It makes me rethink my five-point apology, for sure. Brant says, the kingdom of God is so shockingly opposite the way the rest of the world works that I need a constant reminding of what it looks like and how good it is. It's so shockingly different. And we forget the kingdom is opposite of what we see in the world. It's opposite. Number three, here we go. But what about righteous anger? What about that? All right, so let's talk about when Jesus was angry. We, when we think Jesus was angry, this is probably a good one. John 2, 13 through 17. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting I don't have anybody good doing my notes for me, so this is all messed up. Sitting in the temple, I guess, 
with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he, he said, my father will be a house of prayer, but you've made my father a house of trade. I think I just added that in there. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And then the second place we see is, and he looked around them at, with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. So these are two places in the Bible. I, when, I, when I was researching this, I'm like, okay, I need to look up and see how many times anger is listed in the Bible, how many times Jesus was angry, and what does that say about us? So I looked at, and you know, went, you know, went through my different things. The only verse in the Bible where the word anger is directly attributed and not inferred, okay? You know the difference between inference and inference, right? Where you infer something by the, by the circumstances. But the, act, the verse where the word anger was attributed to Jesus is the second verse here. He was grieved at the hardness of their hearts, and that was with the Pharisees, okay? So he was, that's the only verse. Now, the first one I read to you, we can infer anger on that, although the word is zeal, and although we can say he was upset and he was emotional and he drove out the money changers, the word anger is not used there. But it's an inference, okay? I'm gonna, what I'm gonna challenge you with is this that we are not Jesus, and we are not God. And God says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. So my challenge to you is, while we see Jesus engaged in what some would call righteous anger, my challenge to you would be, we know that the heart is deceitful above all things. When would we trust ourselves to discern righteous anger or not? And it would be, probably do us well to go, you know, I'm not God. Maybe I'll leave this vengeance to the Lord because I, don't, I can't trust my own heart in this circumstance. My filter is broken. That's my challenge. Now, I'm not saying you can't ha have righteous anger. I'm going to challenge you about it. And I'm going to say when you have the character and nature of Jesus Christ, maybe then you can have your righteous anger. Maybe. Janet, do you like that? Sure. Yep. I get it. <laughs> I, I go back to your kid in the parking lot running from you where they can get injured. Mm -hmm. And that anger to me is righteous. But scare the heck out of your kid when you're mad in that situation. Mm -hmm. I don't know the answer, but I will say to you this. The only anger, no, I will say to you this, we have to ask ourselves, do we have the nature and character of Jesus to hold that righteous anger? Are we, do we have that same character? I think that's a fear. I think that is a secondary emotion. I don't think that's true anger. I think you're so afraid of what's going to happen that that's a secondary emotion. In my opinion, okay? All right. Never, here's a big one though, never confuse anger with action. Controlling your anger doesn't mean you accept a situation. Gandhi, Martin Luther King Jr., Mother Teresa are all people who made incredible change in this world because they were not satisfied with the status quo. Now this is a really, this righteous anger thing is a big deal for me because I'm high justice. I'm a high justice person and this is what I was going to tell you before. It is really hard to forgive somebody who's done you real, real wrong and continues to do you real, real wrong. That's hard to do, and I struggle with it. And I don't, I don't preach this because I got it at all. I preach this because it convicts me. <laughs> I preach it because it convicts me. I preach it because... I have to believe that the next place for me as a mature believer is to let go of anger. That's what I have to believe. I have to believe that God uses every single thing in my life to say, we're going to the next place. And you're going to learn from this to go to the next place. So I don't say this to you because I understand, because, because this is my stuff. <laughs> 
I say this to you because I want to be better. And I want joy. And I want to be free from this. But I admit to you how hard it is to not be angry when someone has done you wrong, especially in a real bad way. And there is no five-point apology coming your way. That's real, real hard. So I admit that. However, I still look at Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. and Mother Teresa who changed this world. They changed this world, you guys. For those, this is, this is Brant speaking, for those of you who ask, but how can we fight injustice without anger? King's response was simple, Martin Luther King. Be motivated by love, love for victims, love for bystanders, and even love for our enemies themselves. This is what King himself wrote. Himself wrote, We are not advocating violence. We want to love our enemies. I want you to love our enemies. Be good to them and let them know that you love them. Right? <sighs> so here's what we're coming to, you guys. <laughs> so here's what we're coming to. This is, this is the arc of it. Letting go of anger means our response is love. Letting go of even what we call righteous anger means that we're going to, what? We're going to do something completely different than the world. We're going to love in such a way that it changes the world through our love, not our anger and offense. Here's a good question. If righteous anger is good, then why isn't listed in the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, righteous anger? Not in there. It's not in there. What? From the book, Who Really Cares? This is a guy who talked about, um, who actually did this kind of scientific um, study on indignation and action like offense and action, it turns out that people who are often the most indignant about injustice are the least likely to part with their resources to do anything. How about this? Winning people over with arguments never works. Relationship works. Just recently, I, um, I, you guys know I do mediation. I had a mediation uh, that someone didn't like. <laughs> Fancy that. And so um, I did this mediation. I even prayed with one of the people, this person, at the end of it, because I felt like I should. And I got an email the next day asking me these questions. Why did you do this? And how come you didn't do this? And blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. And wanting to engage me in the, you said you are going to do this, but you didn't. An argument. You, they wanted to prove me wrong. You were supposed to do this, and you didn't do this. And I, I was like, ugh. So I wrote back a couple little things. The next day, I got another one. I was like, oh, this isn't going to work. And I don't, you know what I did? I went, block. And that was the end of that. And I haven't thought about it since, except for tonight. You know, when Nehemiah, we talked last week about Nehemiah, and all those people were trying to poke at him and get him. And he was like, yeah, I'm not coming off this wall. I'm going to block you and do what I'm supposed to do. And I'm here to tell you, who of you has ever been convinced by an argument to come off your, come off your stance? Or do you just dig your heels in more when someone tells you you're wrong? Just dig your heels in more? Yeah, that's what I do. So, do you like my sweatshirt? Or not my sweatshirt, my t-shirt? Smoking, it's so fashionable, isn't it? Well, it's a visual aid. I want to read you a little story. This is from the chapter, <laughs> Let's Punch Brant in the Face. He's such a funny man. All right, Janet, are you ready? Okay. Maybe you know the feeling. Everyone's doing something you know is wrong, something you find so offensive, but you don't know how to convince them of just how wrong it is. You desperately need to let them know how wrong they are and how right you are, and you, and you need a means to make a convincing, well-thought-out, thought-provoking, logical argument. But how? How can you do this? How can you properly impart your sweeping message of disapproval? 
It's obvious. Get him awesome t-shirt. I got one that said smoking stinks. I had one of these as a kid. It had a picture of a cigarette with smoke coming out of it, and smoking stinks was written in cursive, which made it even fancier. I could not find that, so that's what I did, did this. Most people in our little Illinois town smoked. But as a Christian, I knew smoking was evil. So it was great to finally have a t-shirt that so succinctly communicated my disapproval. Look, it's simple, folks. You smoke, you stink. I smoke, I don't stink. I win. Any questions? Now, what exactly do I win? Nothing, as it turns out. But I was a kid, so I have to cut myself some slack. I was just doing what immature humans do. And that is thinking it's my job to put people in their place. I also thought it was my job to single-handedly, quote, win souls for Christ, unquote. And when these souls saw my impressive purity and how I abstained from worldly things like cigarettes, they'd say something like, wow, I want to be like you. Tell me about this Jesus who claimed to be the Jewish Messiah, the fulfillment of all prophecy, the hinge in the history of the universe who's inspired you to wear this Smoking Stinks t-shirt. Just for the record, to date, exactly zero people have asked that. But it's not too late. I think we don't need to do God's job for him. The Holy Spirit's job is to convict. Our job is to love and possibly forgive. All right. So the key to being unoffendable unoffendable is humility. Good job, though. Do not say, I will recompense evil. Wait for the Lord, and he will save you. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of a man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only causes harm. The reality is, like I said before, anger and the punish because offense has to do with punishment, and the, the punishment that comes with it is a sign that we do not trust God to do his job. We're afraid that someone is going to get away with something and God won't notice. It's up to me to judge. (laughs) Uh, Brant tells of a story about um, a Christian band who's giving like a, a speech or a talk about the different kind of crazy questions they get. And one of them is about their, um, somebody who mixes their sound. They said, well, how can you, how can you have a non-Christian in your band? Aren't you, a, you know, how can you um, endorse their lifestyle and have them be in your band? And that is an example of so many Christians who feel like there are sinner cooties. I might get your sinner cooties. Yes, I will be defiled if I associate with a sinner because they're sinner cooties. And I want to just challenge that idea that Jesus ate with the sinners and got sinner cooties all the time. (laughs) And they didn't bother him, and so I don't think they should bother us. Right? There's also crazy scripture that says, Judge not, lest ye be judged. See, the reality is, Anger says we don't trust God to do his job. And that means we're in a place of pride. So the only place, the only way to get away from that is to have a place of humility that says, you know what, I'm not God. My heart is deceitful. I can't judge, and I don't know anybody else's motives. I don't need to stand up for God. He can stand up for himself. I'm not here to convict the world. The Holy Spirit is. My job is to love and forgive. Um, Here's a question for you. If you, just imagine this. Sometimes I really dream about this. You went to the store, like some of us do, and you whipped out your $5. You said, give me five lottery tickets. 
And it was the highest jackpot it's ever been. $500 million. And you um, listen to the thing go off that night, and your numbers were pulled. Right? <laughs> your number was pulled. And you're like, what? I can't believe this. And you got in your car the next day, and you drove to wherever you drive to get it verified. And they said, oh, my gosh, you have all the numbers, and you're the only winner. And you're going to have 500, no, don't I say 500 million? That's what I said. $500 million. And we're going to write you out a check. How would you like that? What bank do you want to put that in? Let me ask you something. Would you be on cloud nine? Yep. Would you be so happy because you're like, I can't believe all my problems are over. I have 500 million. Not only do I get to bless myself, I can bless all the people around me. We're all getting mansions, right? And you drove out and someone pulled in front of you. How angry would you be? Yeah. Would you be angry? No. Why not? Your joy is so high over here, you don't have space for anger. You're so excited about the $500 million, you don't care what happens over here. You're like, I'll buy a new one. I'll buy you one. Right? You see that guy, you want one and your family. I'll get you I'll get all a car. Here's the thing. What God has done for us on the cross is way more than $500 million. And if we really understood what God did for us on the cross, there would be no place for anger in our life because we would be like, I just won the lottery big time. And it's for me and all of you people around me. It's not just for me. Everybody around me gets blessed with my $500 million. Oh, you just ran in front of me? I don't care. Here's, 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 here's a million dollars for you because I got plenty to go around. That's what it would be like if we really understood our place. But we don't. We take it for granted. And we don't say, oh, I'm so rich, I don't have any place for anger over here. What? All right, our conclusion. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Ugh. These are Jesus' words. Oh, I put them in the red letters. Do you get red letters? Yes. Jesus' words, people. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you'll be acting as two true children of your Father in heaven. And then Paul says, and, quote, don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. That is Paul saying that. Now, he's quoting Psalm 4-4 there, which in the Hebrew means tremble or stand in awe. We were having a discussion in the back about whether that means you're angry or not, but this is the only scripture in the New Testament that talks about any kind of permissiveness for anger. And there's still a question as to whether it's talking about anger or not. Becoming unoffended is the essence of ministry. The world will know you, we are Christians by our actions, love or hate. Our call is to be co-redeemers with Christ, with God. I'm going to finish with a story. And I'm sure you guys have heard, about, heard this, but, it, but I'm going to just read it again. I don't know how to pronounce this. I'm just going to guess. So, Sakriska Him is an extreme example. He's a Cambodian man whose story is one of the most horrific I've ever heard. He came from a large family and watched them all die. In 1977, they were beaten to death in front of him. Here's an answer, Janet. With machetes and hose. He was 14 when it happened, and the killers thought they'd killed him too. They left him for dead, buried in a mass grave with 13 members of his family. His escape is a remarkable story, and his desire for vengeance was every bit as powerful as the grief for his family, he says. He swore himself to it. I'll let you read one of his books and find out about how he became a believer in Jesus. But one of the breathtaking aspects of this to me was how quickly he realized he couldn't be a believer in Jesus and remain angry with his family's killers. It was, he realized it was simply incompatible. 
As for me, I grew up surrounded by Jesus and Bible talk in church culture and, and have been told how anger is vital and even good for us. I was taught how to rationalize my entitlement to it. And yet a man who's endured the most nightmarish crime imaginable with limited exposure to Jesus growing up realized the incompatibility of his burning anger with the Jesus who commands us to forgive. These are his words. For years, I cultivated elaborate fantasies in which I tortured and murdered the killers again and again, projecting all my rage and pain I bottled inside myself in my plans for what I would do to the men when I found them. I realized that I would never know true peace until I dealt with this as well. I had to find a way of forgiving them before the bitterness inside destroyed me. Bitterness, anger. He knew he had to get rid of them even in the face of extreme justice. If anyone's entitled to righteous anger, it's him. But with a new nature in Christ, he realized he didn't have a right to such a thing. I eventually found two of the men involved in my family's deaths in the very village and among the very people they terrorized over two decades before. Initially, on hearing that I wanted to meet the men to forgive them, many people thought my plan was just another attempt to locate the men so I could take my revenge. To the surprise of the men and most of the villagers, I shook hands with the two men and forgave them. So here's what I'm telling you guys. The kingdom of God is radically different than what we've been led to believe. It's radically different. And it involves this thing called radical love and radical forgiveness. And if we're going to participate and be co-redeemers, we're going to have to find a way to let go of our anger. Or at the very least, question it a lot. I mean, I'll let you guys you know, figure that out for yourselves. But I'm, I'm here to tell you, there's not a lot that I've looked at that says we have very much anger that we get to hold on to. And I'm talking to myself. So let's just pray. Let's just wind this up and pray. It's kind of a heavy message, right? But has it been good? It's a little bit heavy. But you guys, it's meant to propel us. It's not meant to condemn, okay? It's meant to propel us to where we're supposed to be. Whole nother level, baby. Let's do a Paula thing and hold hands. Get in here, Lori. Lori, get in here, girl. Lord Jesus, I do thank you for this incredible message. I thank you that every bit was laid on Jesus at the cross. And we don't need to do your job for you anymore. And we know we've won $500 million. Mm -hmm. Our joy is overflowing for what you've done for us. We got no place for anger in our lives. God, I pray this would sink deep, that people would really think about this and chew on this, and you would take them to the next level, and joy would just be so contagious. It would flow out of them. It'd be a supernatural transfer lord that you would take us as a group to where you want us to go that would be co-redeemers lord lord i thank you for this food for the hands i've prepared it it's gonna be delicious god let us just enjoy each other and you for what you've done for us lord in jesus name amen, amen.